Good morning. Before we get started, I was just, as I was driving over this morning, um, reminded of this passage from John chapter 5. If you want to look there in John 5, 37 with me, <clears throat> Jesus is saying this to uh, the religious leaders um, in their uh, confrontation with him. Jesus says this, And the Father who sent me has borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Verse 45. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. Just reminded of, of the danger that we have as we uh, read from the law and study from the law, that there's a way in which we even as, as believers can come to God's word and completely miss Jesus. And so what we ought to desire more than anything as we sing the word, as we pray the word, and as we sit under the word, is that we would desire to see Jesus. There's a way in which they can read Moses and know his words back to front, but miss Jesus. But if they believe Moses, they would believe in Jesus. And so even as we study from Exodus 20 today, we ultimately want to see Jesus. I was reminded as Jonathan was praying of <clears throat> Psalm 119, verse 135. As David is praying that the Lord would teach his statutes, he says, Make your face shine upon your servant, and teach me your statutes. So even as we come to the commands in Scripture, and we see how the Lord would call us to walk in obedience, what we need is not just to be taught to obey the Lord, but we need his face, his favor, his blessing to shine upon us. What good would it be for us if the Lord, from a distance, hurled down his commands, but never gave of his goodness, never gave grace, never came to his people? They would be a burden. They would not be life-giving. And so what we want to see, what we want to pray, what happened during this time is even as we come to the word and hear how the Lord would command us and call us to live, as we want to see Jesus and we want to pray that the Lord would cause his face, his blessing, his favor to shine upon his people as we read and study from his word today. So, we are in Exodus chapter, that was the intro to the intro. So, now we'll get started. We are in Exodus chapter 20 today, uh, verses 8 through 11. I was thinking, um, you know, the youth really respect me for my godly wisdom that I, so, uh, that's a joke, Yes. <laughs> They don't respect me at all. Uh, I, I try to bring a little bit of godly wisdom every now and then to them, uh, just trying, uh, sometimes very feebly. Uh, some of the wisdom I tried to pass on a few weeks ago as we were working through Ecclesiastes is there is coming a day when they will carry with themselves a heavy, heavy burden and weight that is almost too much to bear, and that they will regret all of the naps that they did not take. And so I told them, Listen to your parents when they tell you to go and rest. When you have an opportunity to take a nap, do so. Because one day you're going to have a full-time job, and you're going to be trying to keep up with all kinds of school and all kinds of work, 
And then there's going to come a day where you're chasing kids around, and you're going to long for the days where you could, in the middle of the day, go eat, and then just go lazily walk to your couch or bed and sleep for the next four to five hours, and that's just normal for some reason. So appreciate it, appreciate it. I was thinking of how we, in life, we so often, I know I'm not a big planner, but a lot of times people will plan their vacations a year or more in advance. They, people love and cherish vacation time, and they plan it. It is on the schedule. It is sacred time for the family. And when you talk to people, and, and we'll get this question too, like when we're going on vacation, like people ask, what are you most excited about? So often, especially for, for those people who have little kids, it's, I just can't wait to rest. Right? I can't wait to not set an alarm. I can't wait to sleep in. I can't wait to just take a deep breath. And so today we come to the fourth commandment, Sabbath rest, and we might hear this command from the Lord and find within us an excitement to obey the Lord that we've never felt before, right? Oh, Lord, you want us to rest? Sign me up for that. And we would be confused to hear and to read and see and study in Scripture that actually one of the, uh, the, one of the most common commands that the people are rebuked for for the ways in which they disobey it and profane it actually is the Sabbath. You think, well, what's up with that? This is a beautiful command to rest. Yet whenever we look in the pages of Scripture and study from it, the peop- God's people under the Old Covenant continue to struggle with profaning and, and disobeying the fourth commandment and the command to keep the Sabbath rest unto the Lord. And so what we want to see today is that even we as New Covenant people, and we'll talk about the ways in which rest is commanded in the Old Testament, how it differs from the way it is commanded in the New Covenant. We'll, see that we'll talk about those differences. But what we want to see is that we're not so different from our brothers and sisters under the Old Covenant as well, and that we can struggle. And so even our, our modern-day enlightened selves, we would struggle to keep the command to rest in the Lord as well. So we want to meditate upon Exodus 28 through 11 today, and we want to draw out three points. Number one, God's goodness in the fourth command, God's goodness to his people in the fourth command. Number two, we want to see how God's goodness is despised by disobeying the fourth command. And third, we want to see God's goodness appears to bring his people into true rest. So we want to first see God's goodness in the fourth command, God's goodness despised by disobeying the fourth command, and third, we want to see God's goodness appears to bring bring his people into true rest. So let's read from Exodus chapter 20, 8 through 11, and then we'll go to the Lord in prayer. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day, and made it holy. Let's pray. 
Most holy God, we thank you for the gift of your word. We pray now that as we sit under your word that you would give us grace to rightly listen to what you would say to us in the pages of scripture. Um, we thank you that your Holy Spirit as at work, is at work overseeing your word and he is performing all things according to your good purposes. He is working in it all to accomplish your good purposes as we read and study from your word. So we pray that your Holy Spirit will be at work within our hearts and minds, drawing us to yourself, causing your face to shine upon your people, enabling us to see Jesus where we could not see him apart from your work. And we pray, Lord God, if there are any here today who do not know the rest that is found in you, that they would come to see that as well. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, number one, God's goodness to us in the fourth command. The first two things we want to draw out, these are things that Jonathan has been preaching on over the last few weeks as we have spent time uh, reflecting on the Ten Commandments. First off, we want to see that God is good to command. God is good to his people to command. So one of the things that we've been reflecting on is the, the, the gracious reality that God, through no manipulation, through nobody getting their way up to heaven and twisting his arm, God of his own free choice and just out of the overflowing goodness of who he is, reveals himself to his people through the word. God redeems the people for himself in Exodus. We see that he draws them up out of slavery, and God very well could have said, all right, you're my people, now go figure it out. But instead he speaks to his people. One of the, just the most gracious gifts that God has given to us is his word. We don't have to live as people under other religions who, who have an idea that there is a God, and so they just live their life guessing. Is this what would please my God? Is this what would displease my God? Should I do this? Should I not do that? God, in his grace and mercy to his people, has spoken to his people. So his commands are good. They're not burdens. They're not meant to, to destroy. Now, of course, we see in the New Testament our struggles to keep that outside of Jesus Christ and outside of the work of the Spirit. But God is good to his people to command his people. We don't have to guess what pleases the Lord. We don't have to guess what is good for us and what is good for God's people. We don't have to guess what is good for the world. God has spoken to his people. Secondly, we see this that Jonathan has been drawing out is in verse 1 of, of chapter 20, or I'm sorry, verse 2, before God gives the commands, he reminds the people, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It could have been that God came to the people uh, as they were in Egypt, in slavery, and says, here are these commands, do them, and I'll bring you out. God could have done that. But instead, God does what only God can do, and that he redeems a people for himself. He brings them out of slavery, where they could not do that for themselves. And in that, we are being reminded that they are God's people, and that because they are God's people, they are to walk in obedience. They do not have to walk in obedience so that they will become God's people, right? But precisely because of who they are, they can walk in loving obedience to him. They don't have to earn that. But because of what God has done and the work that only he could do, now they are able to and ought to walk in obedience to him. So God is good to give them the commands. 
And God is good to remind his people of their position in being his people. Now we look specifically at God's goodness in the command for Sabbath. So we are reminded in verse 11, what is the foundation for this rest that they are to enter into? It says this, For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Was God tired from his work of creation? Was he exhausted? Was he wearied? No, we see that the, the rest that the Lord takes in creation is, is that he is withdrawing from work. He is ceasing from work because his work of creation is complete. His work is done. And so what's the foundation for God's people taking a Sabbath rest? Is that they are being reminded that the God who is their God, the one true God, is the creator God of all things. He creates all things by the word of his power. That's power you can trust in, right? So as we see the diff, we're going to talk about the difficulties in keeping this command in just, for a, in just a moment. But one of the realities that they can, they can have as their foundation for keeping this command is knowing the power of the God they serve. The power of the God who is their God. He is creator. But not only that, as we look over in Deuteronomy chapter 5, I'd, I'd encourage you to flip over there and see this. Notice as Moses recounts the Ten Commandments to the people, and notice what's different about the Sabbath command in Deuteronomy chapter 5. We'll start in verse 12. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy, as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your ox or your donkey or any of your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates, that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. Listen to this. You shall remember that you are a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. So we actually have, for God's people here in the Old Covenant, they have two foundational realities that they can trust in as they seek to walk in obedience and keeping this command to rest, and that God is their creator, but God is also their redeemer. He is a God who has not just created all things and brought all things into being through the word of his power, but he is the God who has taken his people out from under slavery in Egypt. That's a God you can trust in. They owe their existence to God. But not only that, they specifically owe their existence to God as God's people now, who are about to enter the promised land, because God is their Redeemer. God has purchased them. God has brought them out of the land of Egypt and made them his own. They can trust that the Lord will sustain them. The Lord will keep them. The Lord will protect them. He will deliver. We also see God's commands and how they are to keep these commands. Notice in, in, back in Exodus chapter 20 now, they are to keep the Sabbath to the Lord. So who is this obedience to? To the Lord. The Lord blesses the Sabbath day in verse 11, and he makes it holy. It is a holy day unto the Lord. Meaning, 
they are able to come and set their hearts and minds, which we'll talk about a little bit more in just a moment. They're able to come and set their hearts and minds on their Creator God and their Redeemer God, knowing Him as they give their hands and feet a break from the normal work of life. They are invited into keeping this day unto the Lord, remembering, setting their hearts and their minds on who God is and who they are in Him. So we see, I'm reminded of Psalm 34, verses 8 through 10. O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. O fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. For God's people, they have everything they need. Everything they need. There is nothing that God withholds from his people that they need. And so they can rest unto the Lord, trusting in who he is as their creator, as their redeemer, the one who brought them into being and who will sustain them and protect them and keep them. So it's a goodness to God's people that he would say, keep this day unto me. Set your hearts and your minds on who I am. Take a break from the normalcy of life. And come and set your hearts and minds on me. They are to remember. The command starts off with that word, remember. They're to set their minds on this. So in Exodus 16, the people of Israel are actually giving a pattern for work and rest in Exodus 16. What goes on there? The people are hungry. And what does the Lord give? Manna. Six days the Lord will send bread from heaven. Not on the seventh, though. But six days they're to gather, and on the sixth day, they are to gather enough for the seventh day. And here's what happens, as God's people obey that command and faithfully live it out, is they find each and every day that they have exactly what they need. Nothing more, nothing less. God's people have exactly what they need. So what's at the heart of this command is for them to Remember, remember the Sabbath, remember who the Lord their God is and how he will provide for them. Let's get into the details then as to how they're actually to keep this day. In verse 10, on it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. In Leviticus 23, 3, we see this. Six days shall work be done, but on the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, a holy convocation. You shall do no work. It is a Sabbath to the Lord in all your dwelling places. So God gives his people the command, take care of all that you need to with the six days of work that you have. Be fruitful, build, tend to all that you need to, but on the seventh day, you withdraw from all of the normal work that your hands and your feet undertake. Keep this day unto me, remembering who I am and who you are in me. Do no rest. It is a day that they are, they are to intentionally and deliberately set their hearts and minds on him, remembering that their identity is not in their work. Their identity or who they are or, or that they exist is not because of what they can do and what they can accomplish, but it's in who God is and what God can do and what God can accomplish. Notice here, it's not an individualistic day. 
This is a day, notice, you shall not do any work, your wife, your children, your animals, the sojourner who's within your gates. The Sabbath day is not an individualistic day. It is a day for the family. It is a day for God's people to stop their normal work and to keep it unto the Lord. So the family is to stop its work. Mothers and fathers, grandparents and, and friends and family within the community of God's people are to set godly examples for the children and how they are to rest and how are they to keep this day unto the Lord, remembering him. They cease from the normal patterns of life. They stop all of that. They breathe. Who is the Lord? What has the Lord done for his people? And who are we in him? Notice also this serves in as, an, as an example and an invitation for the outsider, the sojourner. So while the sojourner, according to, uh, to uh, the law in the Old Testament, the sojourner is unable to enjoy all of the covenant blessings that God's people get to enjoy, but they are able to come and experience some, and this is one of them. The sojourner is called to stop and cease from working. This means that Israel can't stop from its work and then have all of these anxious, worrisome thoughts going on and send the sojourner out to keep the work going, right? All work has to stop, and so the sojourner is able to come and see who the Lord God is and what it means to walk as his people. And so it's an example to even the outsider who's attached to God's people. So then, how do we see God's goodness despised by disobeying the fourth command? Because all of that sounds really good, right? To cease from the normal aspects of work, the normal patterns of, of our daily lives, take a deep breath, and just set our hearts and minds on who the Lord is and who we are as his people, settle for a moment, rest? How, how is it that God's people could ever disobey such a sweet command? Reminded of this, you could do this, but you won't do this because you're a good Christian. You could take out your phone right now, you could pull up an app, and within a matter of moments, you could order all of the groceries that you and your flock of kids or whoever needs for the coming days and week ahead. And then you could leave the service, you could pu pull up to a giant warehouse full of food and lots of other random things, and you can open your trunk, not even get out of your car, and have someone load all of that food into the back of your car. The whole idea of us living and working in such a way to that in such a way that our survival is based upon this is very foreign to us, right? There's restaurants all up and down the street. There's, there's food everywhere. And so the idea that everything that we do literally keeps us living is very foreign to us. But whenever we keep in mind the day and age in which God's people lived in here as these commands are given, we actually maybe begin to see how this would be a hard command for the people to follow. So a few of the ways that Israel would disobey this command is one, they would just not cease from their work. They would just altogether disobey the command to stop working. And so they would think about all the things that they have to do, that they have to accomplish, that they have to keep, for, to keep their family fed and, and roof over their heads and all of that, and they would just simply disobey the command. They would keep their work going. Uh, and we see how... Uh, even in that, we, we get to the Proverbs, and we talk about how the sluggard 
is someone who's looked down upon, but the person who works and works heartily unto the Lord, those are the types of people who are praised. And so people can just keep on doing their work because maybe that's what they do. Their identity is wrapped up in that. Their identity is wrapped up in, in, in how they work, in, in, in what they do for a living. And so they would just simply not obey the command to just stop working. Think about all of the anxious thoughts. Maybe you're trying to keep the Sabbath command. Maybe you're trying to, to set your hearts and minds on the Lord. You come together with God's people and you're, you're recounting how the Lord brought God's people through the Red Sea and how he provided for them. But then all of a sudden you hear something concerning out in the field or you think, did I, did I gather enough wood for the fire later? There actually is a story in Numbers where someone is executed because of their disobedience to this command because they go out and gather sticks. Maybe, you, know, you know the feeling. Some of you in, in the service already have already begun to, to, to start a list of the things that you have not done, that you've forgotten to do, and that you have to do. So you think you're trying to obey this command, but all of these worrisome, anxious thoughts come in. It's like, well, I gotta go do this. I have to go do this. And so you don't trust in God as creator, as redeemer, and sustainer of, of, of you. And so you go and you work. The second way they could also break this command is this. It's just by living selfish, individualistic lives. The prophets, and especially Isaiah and Isaiah 58, and you even see some of this in the historical books in Nehemiah, and that the people disobey the Sabbath, they profane the Sabbath, by taking this rest, this Sabbath rest, as an opportunity to live according to the pleasures of this world, according to their own fleshly desires. Time off from work? Okay, well now I get to do the things that I've been having to say no to all week. I'll go do what I want to do. And so they give themselves over to all kinds of immorality and worship of self. They give themselves over to the purchasing of goods, over to the marketplace. And they do not keep it unto the Lord, but rather they take the Sabbath and they keep it unto themselves. It's a day that becomes self-centered rather than the day where they come and set their hearts and minds on who God is and who they are in him. By the time we get to the Gospels, we see tensions throughout between Jesus and the religious leaders over issues of the Sabbath. There's constantly confrontation over this. Part of this is that there's a tradition that was swelling up in the time of Jesus that would say that in order for, for God to send his Messiah to come and save Israel and restore Israel and squash and destroy all of God's enemies, all of his people's enemies, is that they need to perfectly keep the commands, especially the Sabbath command. And so the Pharisees in particular begin to develop all of these traditions and strict rules and regulations about how to keep the Sabbath, what you can't do, what you can't do, how many steps you can take and how many steps you can't take. And so they actually begin to profane and disobey the fourth commandment by not keeping it as it was intended. They seek to keep this day as a way to earn the favor of the Lord rather than seeing that it is God who gives rest. Only God can give rest. They seek to manipulate or earn the favor of the Lord so that the Lord would bring them salvation, rather than realizing that precisely because the Lord has saved them, the Lord has redeemed them, they can now live their lives in the rest that he has brought about. 
And so Jesus comes in the gospel, and he actually is, we'll talk about this in just a moment, he's the embodiment of true Sabbath rest, and so he comes, and he begins to heal on the Sabbath, restore on the Sabbath, bring people's lives who are broken and oppressed and ailing, and he brings them into true life. He, he is restoring them. He's bringing them into true rest. And the religious leaders constantly confront and oppose Jesus because he's doing these things. But what did Jesus come to do? To do the works of his Father, according to John chapter 5. And he is doing the work of bringing God's people rest that only God could bring about. So, God's people can despise and disobey even a sweet command like rest. And don't we do the same? Let's turn all of that on its head and see how we, as God's people, can do that. Is it hard for some of us to stop working? This one's alien to me. Some of you in this room can relate, though. Is it hard for some of us just to stop? Maybe a workaholic is a good adjective for, for how we live our lives, for the type of people that we are. Rest seems like laziness, and laziness doesn't put food on the table, money in the savings account, kids in the right social situ situations, or advancements in the career. We go to sleep at night because we have to, not because we want to. As the psalmist would pray, we eat the bread of anxious toil. We give ourselves over to our work, becoming identified by what we do and how we do it. And we don't feel right and at peace. We feel unsettled unless we are expending ourselves all the time in work. We are consumed with thoughts of what we need to be doing, what we need to accomplish, what we need to save war for, what we need to plan for, so that finally our lives can be at rest. In that, we fail to set a good example for our kids, as was the opportunity in Exodus chapter 20. And so we end up having kids who are anxious, workaholic teenagers, obsessed and consumed with getting the perfect grade, getting as much training in sports as possible, and having every opportunity to be as successful as possible. And so our kids never know breaks physically from work, from school, from sports and extracurriculars. And they're tired. Rest is seen as the speed bump in the middle of the road that slows us down from what we really think is important. We come to worship the Lord even on Sundays with our minds half set on Him and half set on all the things that we need to do. Also, the patterns of our work and rest, they end up looking no different from the world a lot of times. So the sojourner, who is maybe attached to us in the workplace, or on the ball field, or in the PTO meetings, or wherever we are, the sojourner who happens to be within our gates, so to speak, sees no difference in how we live. Our patterns of work and rest look no different than the patterns of work and rest of the world. Do the way in which we rest, does it look like God's people, or does it look just like the world? Maybe we take breaks from work. Maybe we do rest, but we do what Israel so often does in the Old Testament, and we take our rest as an opportunity for the flesh. Opportunities for rest from a break? Great. Let's do all the things that I want to do. I need my rest. Get away from me, spouse and children. Get away from me, kids. And so a father 
or a mother, they take rest as an opportunity to be consumed by their phones, by their computer screens, by their TV, by the, by the, by the football game on a Saturday afternoon, going off and, and fishing or hunting for hours or going to the store just to mindlessly walk along the aisles and say, this is, this is my rest. And so we take our opportunities as a rest, or we take our opportunities for rest to be individualistic rather than setting a good example of how to rest in the Lord. We don't rest unto the Lord, but rather we rest unto ourselves. And if anyone hinders that, get away. Maybe we despise God's goodness to us by finding our rest in created things rather than creator God. So maybe we do try and find our rest through mindlessly scrolling through our phones, spending hours in front of the TV, finding rest and relief from the stresses and anxieties of this world through immorality, through impurities, through lustful thoughts. Maybe we find rest when we're having gossip-filled conversations with people. We feel at peace whenever we're, we're feeling accepted by the right group of people. And so our speech is not good or holy unto the Lord. But maybe we can find our rest through created things rather than our creator God. So perhaps we find out that we modern, enlightened, new covenant people struggle to rest in the Lord just as people in the old covenant did. Maybe we would profane the rest that the Lord can provide just as people in the old covenant did. As we're about to see, the Sabbath is the one command not explicitly commanded in the New Testament or to the new covenant people of God. In the new covenant, though, we do see this. God's people withdraw from the work of the world not on the Sabbath, but on the Lord's Day, Sunday, as they physically gather with God's people, remembering God as their creator and God as their redeemer. All he has, all he is, all he has done, all he is doing, and all he will do. And maybe one thing that we ought to just ask ourselves, even as we sit here today, is have we rightly withdrawn from the work through the anxiousness the worries of this world to come and rest in the salvation that's found in the Lord or our hearts and minds elsewhere. God's goodness, point number three, God's goodness appears to bring his people into true rest. So we do have hope. Colossians 2, 16 and 17 says this. Paul writes this in Colossians 2, 16 and 17. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath, these are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So under the new covenant, the Sabbath is not carried out as it was, or I'm sorry, yeah, the Sabbath is not to be carried out as it was to be carried out under the old covenant. So while the people under the old covenant rested from their work on the last day of the week, in the new covenant, we withdraw from the work on the Lord's Day on Sunday. But one of the things we ought to do, or we ought not do, I should say, is we ought not pass strict regulations and judgments upon people for how they even spend their Lord's Day. Right? We don't want to run too far with what is commanded in the pages of Scripture for God's new covenant people. However, positively speaking, from Colossians 2, 16 and 17, we do see this. Paul teaches here that the Sabbath under the Old Covenant was a shadow. It was a sign pointing something, pointing forward to something greater, a greater Sabbath rest to come. 
meaning the fourth command that we see in Exodus 28 through 11 is a shadow, and the substance is not a day, but the substance is a person, Jesus. And so the rest that's commanded in the new covenant is not in a day in how we spend it, but rather the rest that's commanded for God's people is found in the person of Jesus. God's goodness to his people is not just found in his commands or his invitations, but God's greatest goodness to his people is himself. God doesn't just hurl down blessings from a distance. God's greatest gift, God's greatest goodness to his people is the gift of himself, and specifically the gift of Jesus. The goodness of God becomes embodied, robed in human flesh, and the goodness of God dwells amongst sinners who would despise the commands and the goodness of God, trying to find their rest elsewhere, trying to find their salvation elsewhere, and not trusting in the Lord by ceasing from their work to worship and honor him. But this we see in Luke chapter 4. I'd encourage you to turn to Luke chapter 4, verse 16. Luke chapter 4, verse 16. Jesus begins his earthly ministry. It says this, And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And he stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to, to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. So one Sabbath, the goodness of God in human flesh reveals himself and his mission. Jesus, the divine Son of God, proclaims liberty, a Sabbath of Sabbaths to God's people, Rest, true rest is coming. He is going to restore. He is going to make all things new. He is going to do and accomplish the works that his father has sent him to do, namely the works of coming and laying down his life to redeem a people for himself. And we know that that work was completed. We know that that work was finished. Because what does Jesus say on the cross? It is is finished the work is done and the evidence that jesus spoke rightly on the cross is that on the third day jesus rose again the debt has been paid the work has been finished and done and completed jesus has laid down his life for his people to bring them to himself Jesus would call himself the Lord of the Sabbath has come to bring true Sabbath rest that is not found in a command but in his very person. So the Lord's Day, Sunday, becomes the day of us coming together, withdrawing from the normal patterns of work in the world to celebrate the finished work of God in Jesus Christ. The Israelites worked six days and then entered into rest. 
They worked six days and entered into rest. The new covenant people of God start, start their week from the rest that only God can provide and bring about. Out of the rest that God brings, his into, brings us into, that's where we work. We do not work in this world, in our workplaces, in our schools, in, in, in and amongst the communities around us. We do not work to find rest within ourselves, to find salvation, to find satisfaction, to find fulfillment. We will be people who are filled with sorrows if we try to do so. We're also not people who have to work our way to the Lord. But Jesus has brought us into his rest, and all of our work is done flowing out of that reality, out of the reality of the rest that he provides. And so we go to Hebrews chapter 4 as we close, that Jonathan read from earlier. In Hebrews 4 verse 9, it talks about how there is a, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. And we are commanded to enter that rest. Commanded to enter that rest. So it says this in verse 11. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. The promise of, the promise of true rest, Sabbath rest, found in Jesus, stands, remains for us today. And we are commanded to enter into it. That promise, that word is there. And it's that promise, it's that word that in context is being talked about in verse 12. The word of God, the promise of this rest is living and active. And what is that word doing? It's getting down to the deepest places of who we are and exposing everything. And what is exposed? It's that I can come before you today and say, I trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ Yet within my heart is all of this striving, is all of this working, that says, I say one thing with my mouth, but how I live my life and what is going on in my heart says that I do not trust the rest that the Lord provides. I can live a life where I'm trying to earn and work my way to the Lord to earn his favor or to, to work outside in such a way that I would find my rest from how people perceive me and how they respect me or don't respect me and find my identity in the work that's out there. And so the word of God, the promise of rest, is getting down into the deepest places of who we are and it is sifting out. Do you believe in your heart what your mouth confesses? Do you trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ and the rest that only he can provide? Do you believe the Lord has done it? Do you believe that the Lord can come and say, come to me, rest in me?
So here's the good news for us who believe, yet struggle. Struggle to live out obedience to the word of promise for true Sabbath rest in Jesus. And we see that in verses 14 through 16, is that we have a great high priest. And whenever we come to him in weakness, confessing to him all the ways in which we are trying to work and not trusting in the rest and salvation that only he can provide, our great high priest does not heap upon us shame and condemnation and say, figure it out. I didn't purchase you for you to be screwing up like this. But rather, our great high priest, what we find from his hand is only, only grace and mercy. Only grace and mercy as we come to him even confessing our disobedience and trusting in him and trusting in the rest that he provides. Jesus is faithful to save his people, to redeem his people. And in Hebrews chapter 7 says, he lives to make intercession for his people. He will save us to the uttermost. To the uttermost. And so we can trust that as we come to the Lord, confessing how we fail to trust in him and the salvation that only he can provide and bring about in our lives, we find grace and mercy in all the times in which we need help. And we can know that he lives to make intercession. So are you struggling today to rest in the Lord? Are you struggling to trust him for salvation? And you think that you need to do a little extra work on your part? Are you struggling with not finding your identity in your work? Are you struggling with pushing your kids to be workaholics who need what they can achieve? Are you struggling to look different in your patterns and work and rest from how the world works and rests? Are you struggling to come and live wholly unto the Lord as you come and worship and seek Him? Are you afraid of what the word of promise would find out as it gets into the deepest places of who you are? If so, you're in a company that's, that's filled right now, not empty, that we all come together and recognize the ways in which we have failed but we can come to our great high priest with confidence, trusting in the rest that he provides. And so my encouragement and prayer is that we would come to Jesus and find our rest in him today. Let's pray. Most holy God, we thank you that in your grace and in your mercy, you have not left us to yourselves. Lord God, we see in the pages of Scripture that apart from you, we have no good. We have no good. Apart from you, we are lost in darkness. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. We are people who only live according to the passions of our mind and the flesh. And we live to carry out those desires. And we are rightly children of wrath. But we thank you, Lord God, that you did not leave us to ourselves, but that you came to us, that you would send your son, Jesus, to take upon himself the sentence of condemnation that we rightly deserved, so that for all of those who are in Christ Jesus, we could hear from you, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And we can come and we can trust in your finished work of salvation. We can come and find our rest in you, 
We can come knowing that we don't have to work or earn our ways to you, but we can trust in you. We don't have to go out into the world and seek to find our salvation and fulfillment in the things of this world and how we can work in the world, but rather we can come to you and rest in you. So Lord God, would you give us grace to come together and strive to enter into the rest that is found in Jesus and in Jesus alone. And we thank you that even as we come to you praying and confessing our sins, we don't even know how to pray as we ought to, but the Spirit intercedes, and we also trust that we have a great high priest who lives to make intercession for his people, and we trust that you will save to the uttermost. Lord God, would you give us grace to trust in you, our Creator and our Redeemer. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.